Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, November the 5th. This week we're going to focus on an article in the research section of the journal. This was published online a couple of weeks ago and concerns the very interesting but controversial area of bystander CPR. But just before we do that, it's quite possible, particularly if you're in the United Kingdom or Europe, that you may have noticed an enormous amount of media coverage concerning a Lancet paper published online on Monday, November the 1st. I'm joined by my colleague, Tony Kirby, who is Media Relations Manager of The Lancet, to discuss, if you like, the fallout from this paper. But Tony, first of all, welcome. And, and just remind listeners, in, in a nutshell, pardon the pun, as the lead author was David Nutt, what the paper was saying. Yes, morning, Richard. The paper essentially looked at the harm caused by a number of drugs, including alcohol and tobacco, to both the user and to society as a whole. And the result of that study was that alcohol was had the top score out of 100 in overall harm, rated at 72, followed by heroin, 55, and crack cocaine, at 54. And a lot of the other drugs, recreational drugs, that members of the public might expect to find at the higher end of the scale were very low down. So the recently banned methadrone in the UK, rated as low as 13. Ecstasy was just nine on the chart. So based on that scale, alcohol could be considered eight times more harmful than ecstasy. And the study looked at a number of harms to the user, including death rates caused by the drug, memory impairment, that kind of thing. And in the harm to others, it was community cohesion, damage to relationships, the effect on crime, all that kind of thing, all bundled into one overall rating. If you're not familiar with the paper or have seen the press coverage, you could probably understand that uh, the media has gone to town on this story. I actually wasn't at work on Monday, but I couldn't fail to hear about the coverage that this paper was getting. Some parts of the media seem to be dealing with it quite hysterically. I literally walked past a television set and heard some people saying, well, how on earth can a glass of wine be more harmful than uh, heroin or ecstasy? But clearly that's nonsense. That's not what the paper is saying, is it? No, uh, there was widespread confusion, I think, over the harm to self and harm to others. And to be fair to the media, they are two distinctly separate entities. They've been combined into one for the, you know, the ease of an overall rating here. But alcohol wasn't the most harmful to the individual. It finished fourth on that list behind heroin and crack again and crystal meth was actually third in the harm to self. But alcohol came out way on top on harm to others. So and overall together that meant alcohol finished you know well ahead of the field in overall harm. The reasons for that were that it's widely used. It causes a lot of road accidents, a lot of violence damage to all organ systems when used in excess. The media sort of took a number of different standpoints on it. Obviously there was this objection to the cultural norm that most people enjoy a glass of wine, as you were saying, Richard, um, every day with their meal and you know they're not taking heroin or cocaine every day. And that, that, that kind of disruption to the what is seen as a sort of treat, daily treat to, to many people, was taken particularly badly by the right-wing press. Um, men, many seem to think also Professor Nutt has a hidden agenda on wanting to legalise drugs. And, you know, my opinion on this is that he might have an opinion on that, but he doesn't have an agenda. He puts forward the impassionate evidence, the best evidence him and his team can gather, and then individual media outlets are reacting according to their own agendas accordingly. I was surprised 
that some media outlets that you would have assumed to have taken a particular view actually took the opposite one. For example, there was an opinion piece in the UK's Daily Mail, which is a sort of um, tabletop. It's not a tabloid, but it's, got, it's sort of in between a tabloid and a broadsheet, isn't it, for people outside the UK not familiar with it. Quite often and usually takes quite a, quite a tough line, um, quite a sort of conservative tone, but they published a fairly liberal comment piece, didn't they? That's correct, Richard, yes. I've got that one in front of me right now. It's called How Legalising Drugs Would Deal with the Local Baron. And it's, um, you know, it is a very sort of tolerant piece for the Daily Mail. And But but I have to say, Richard, that it followed a number of other less tolerant pieces, which were exactly what was expected. And also the Daily Mail columnist Peter Hitchens appeared on the BBC Radio 4 Today programme and basically just shouted a lot, referring to things like this this silly chart. There was a lot of vitriol in what he was saying and a lot of shouting, and David Nutt did a very good job of calmly uh, putting forward the evidence in the paper rather than taking any kind of moral high ground or low ground or however or, or however you want to look at it. Hitchens, I think, believes he was de- you know reflecting the outrage of the moderate majority based on the fact that alcohol is legal and drugs aren't legal, but you know this this failure to accept that alcohol is a drug and tobacco is a drug and that they it can cause many, harm and yeah it's, it's for many it's, commentators the, the the root of the problem in trying to get the sort of general public on side just because something's legal doesn't mean it isn't a drug and just because something's illegal doesn't mean it's necessarily the most harmful it's brought to the fore really the, the again this debate that's been had on the minimum unit price of alcohol that's been touted in in the UK and in other countries um, I understand it was recently defeated in, in Scotland, a law attempting to raise the minimum unit price of, price of alcohol. And Sir Ian Gilmore, former head of the Royal College of Physicians, has been a great advocate for alcohol control, You know, restricting availability, increasing the unit price in order to bring down the overall harm of the drug. Not, not to just focus on the Daily Mail, Richard, there was, there was lots of very good coverage and obviously the more left-wing or moderate press covered it well. The UK Guardian, it was the front page story for that on that newspaper with some very good analysis. Um, the Independent did an editorial describing the paper as a welcoming injection of science. The other other sort of, the Times and the Telegraph were more sort of moderate, but the Times, I've noticed, has had quite a few letters um, condemning the study in their letters section since since it was published on Monday. And finally, Tony, just briefly, if you would, has there been much pick-up of this story outside the UK? Yes, there's been a massive um, amount of coverage across Europe. Um, the USA have covered it it's sort of in fit, fits and starts. I think, They've been a bit busy with their elections here, haven't they? Yeah, and it was a, it was a, with the story breaking on a Monday as well and, and US journalists being away on you know away from work on the Sunday, it's sort of a slightly more difficult for them to cover at short notice, I think, but... It has received a lot of coverage all over the country and, you know, CBS News, a lot of the big, big US broadcasters have, have done something or other on it. Thank you very much, Tony. Of course, I suppose the key issue is, is anyone going to take notice of, of what it's saying? Is it going to result in policy changes? Of course, we don't know that. We just have to wait and see. Well, Professor Nutt said himself at the conference to launch the paper on Monday that it's his job simply to put the evidence in front of the government and if they choose to ignore it then eventually that will come home to roost. And just to repeat the study was published online on November the 1st and it is in this week's issue of The Lancet in the print issue that's issue dated November the 6th to the 12th. 
Many thanks to Tony Kirby there. And now let's discuss another interesting and controversial issue, that is bystander CPR. This week we publish a meta-analysis and also a linked comment, and this is to try and ascertain what is the best approach for bystanders when undertaking CPR. To get clarity on this, I spoke to the author of the comment alongside the paper, Dr Jerry Nolan, who spoke to me from the Royal United Hospital in Bath in the United Kingdom. The main issue here that we're talking about is the, is the question of bystander CPR in the event that somebody uh, collapses out of hospital with a cardiac arrest. Conventionally, of course, we've trained bystanders to do both chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth ventilation, or so-called kiss of life, when providing CPR. We know from several observational studies that if bystander CPR is provided, it will increase the chances of um, survival to leave hospital alive by some between two and two and a half times. One of the problems that we still face is that it's only in about one in three cases that bystander CPR is carried out at all. And some of the issues are around the fact that mouth-to-mouth ventilation can be difficult to do, difficult to teach, and some people may be put off from doing CPR because they believe they, you know, they have to do mouth-to-mouth breathing and don't particularly want to do that for aesthetic reasons. So for some time, there have been some uh, investigators that have explored the possibility that perhaps doing chest compressions alone and omitting mouth-to-mouth ventilation may in some cases produce results that are at least as good as and in some cases even better than conventional CPR. And the thought is that if we can teach people to just do compression only, it would be much easier to teach them. We could potentially get many more people doing at least some CPR. And we know from many studies that at least, you know, some CPR, whatever it is, is better than no CPR. And if you just comment on the research article that we invited you to write a comment about, and this, this is actually a meta-analysis, isn't it, of, of three studies in this field? Well, I think the research article is very interesting. I think it's really almost in two parts. There was a the primary meta-analysis was very specifically uh, looking at three randomised controlled trials of so-called dispatcher-assisted bystander CPR. I'm sure it's helpful to explain exactly what that is, but basically if a bystander rings the emergency services because they have witnessed somebody collapse, and if the uh, dispatcher who answers that call by asking the bystander questions, if he believes that person may be in cardiac arrest, and if the dispatcher has not been trained to do CPR, then Obviously, apart from making sure the ambulance is on the way, the dispatcher will try to talk the bystander through how to do CPR. And in the past, the conventional way of doing that would be to try and teach the person to do full CPR, Start indeed often starting with mouth-to-mouth and then going on to do the chest compressions. But there have been now three randomized controlled trials where they've compared this so-called dispatcher-assisted bystander CPR using conventional CPR in the way I've just described with the much simpler compression-only technique where they will teach the bystander just how to do chest compressions and continue to do that until the emergency medical services arrive. Basically, the three um, randomized controlled trials, and I should say one of them is actually goes back as far, I think, as the year 2000, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That was the first one. But the two uh, more recent ones were actually from earlier this year, again in the New England Journal. All three of them showed results that were not statistically significant in terms of survival to hospital discharge, but they all trended in favor of compression-only 
over full conventional bystander CPR. When these authors undertook the meta-analysis, combined um, all those data, they showed in fact that the, there was a statistical significance in favour of the compression, dispatcher-assisted compression-only CPR. But what was that statistical significance? Pretty well, fairly, fairly small. They showed overall in those in those in that meta-analysis that the results in terms of survival to discharge was 14% in the compression only group, 12% in the standard CPR group. That gave uh, a risk ratio of 1.22, and confidence intervals were all uh, above one. So. Uh, making that statistically significant. So it was abs- an absolute increase in survival of 2.4%, which in for resuscitation studies is actually pretty good. Key question, of course, is what does that mean for guidelines? Because this is still a contentious issue, isn't it? Some quarters are advocating full CPR, including uh, rescue um, ventilation, and, and, um, and others not. Well, I think it's, it's really important that we separate away dispatcher-assisted CPR from standard bystander CPR, in other words, where somebody just starts to do CPR on a, on a collapsed patient out of hospital without dispatcher assistance. I think this meta-analysis shows pretty clearly with, with fairly high-level evidence that if a dispatcher is going to give advice on how to do CPR to a bystander, that advice should be compression-only CPR. But I think the question of what we should be training bystanders to do in general is much more contentious um, because it may be that a bystander who has been properly trained in full standard CPR may perhaps still produce better results by including mouth-to-mouth ventilation than somebody who just attempts to do compression-only CPR. So it's, it's complicated, and I think the critical thing is is that we need to know what should we be training lay people to do when they come along and do their, their CPR classes. And at the moment, the guidelines are still indicating that ideally lay people should be trained to do both compressions and ventilations under those circumstances. But would you personally now, as a result of this research and your comment, disagree with those current guidelines? No, I think I would support the guidelines at the moment based on the evidence that we have. However, um, I I would say it, it, it's, it's very contentious. I think there are two different uh, schools of thought out there at the moment. There are some people that believe we should right now um, really only be teaching lay people to do compression-only CPR, not not attempting to teach them to do mouth-to-mouth ventilation. The problem is, and it's it's quite complex, but the, the issues are that if if the cardiac arrest is primary cardiac, so if somebody has a sudden collapse because of a primary cardiac problem, then they probably do have a reasonable reserve of oxygen in their lungs that will last for at least four or five minutes or so, so that with compression only you can circulate um, both blood and oxygen at reasonable levels. In some cases, of course, of cardiac arrest out of hospital, it may be a primary asphyxial problem. And certainly, for example, after a drowning or in, in two-thirds of children who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, the problem is not primary heart but some sort of asphyxial problem. And in those cases, um, the evidence is that they do not do as well with compression-only CPR. Of course, which a lay bystander would never be able to distinguish between the two. Well, absolutely, and I think this is the, this is the, the, the really contentious part, is that some people believe they probably could on the grounds that 
if you instruct people to act if they see somebody suddenly collapse, whether it's um, an adult or indeed a child, if they suddenly collapse, it's probably primary cardiac. And some would argue you could then teach them to do compression only under those circumstances. What I would accept from the advocates of compression-only CPR is that we desperately do want more bystanders to actually do something. There is some evidence from a group that's particularly vocal in support of compression-only CPR, a group that's based in Arizona. They have shown very recently some some evidence, which they've uh, published this year, indicating that by really converting and trying to train lay people in compression only instead of conventional CPR, they've increased the proportion of patients who have out-of-hospital cardiac having some sort of bystander CPR. They've increased it from 28% to 40%, which is a you know, pretty significant improvement in the number of people having at least some form of bystander CPR applied. Perhaps the take-home message is, whilst it remains a controversial area with different schools of thought, here's some evidence more towards compression only. We still want people to come forward well, and do... What we want people to do is absolutely to do, to do CPR, bystander yeah. CPR. That's the first thing, because we must remember at the moment, in the UK, and I'll, I'll keep it... It's probably true across Europe as well, it, only one in three out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victims will have bystander CPR. So we need to increase those rates. At the moment, we think ideally still we would be training people to do, to do conventional CPR. However, there may be ways of getting more people to do some form of bystander CPR by, by simplifying it and using compression only. And that may mean, for example, self-training by videos or, or um, videos based on, you know, on the internet, for example, or it could even be mass training using me media such as television. There are other ways, potentially, of being able to teach people what to do when the technique is so much more simple. So that gives, in a, in a way, I guess, a baseline which says, at least, whatever you do, please, please do compression-only CPR, but if you have been trained in mouth-to-mouth -mouth ventilation, then, of course, add that in. I think that's very clear and an excellent way to end this very interesting interview. Jerry Nolan, Dr. Jerry Nolan, on the line from Bath in the United Kingdom. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Many thanks to Jerry Nolan and earlier to Tony Kirby and to you all for listening. See you next week.